Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the Journal of the Society for Army Historical Research, Volume 14, Number 53. Title of the article is Freemasonry in the British Army by Captain William Thomas. Since the year 1732, when a Masonic Lodge, number 11, was warranted to the first regiment of foot by the Grand Lodge of Ireland, the English-speaking craft has been under the deep obligation to the British military lodges. These lodges spread the knowledge of Freemasonry in all parts of the world, and their pioneer work, probably accomplished more by the Masonic soldier than by the Masonic officer, is a matter for gratitude and pride. In the main, the early history of Freemasonry concerns other ranks, but there were many exceptions. The craft seems to have had a great attraction for military men, for the rank and file as well as the commissioned officers. A good Mason has always been a good soldier. Field Marshal Lord Combermere, who, as a Mason, was well acquainted with Masonic military life, once said, As a military man, and speaking from experience, I can say that I have known many soldiers who were Masons, but never knew a good Mason who was a bad soldier. And Dr. James Burns, who was appointed Provincial Grand Master for Western India in 1836, has also said, From the qualification required in military lodges, as well as the character of our institution, the Masonic Badge has become an honorable distinction in the ranks of the Army. On last St. John's Day, I had the honor of being supported by Brigadier Valiant, commanding the garrison of Bombay, and Colonel Griffith, commandment of the artillery, two distinguished officers and Masons, who asserted in the presence of the military lodge Orthez, sixth foot, that Masonic brethren had invariably been the best conducted soldiers. It is also within my knowledge that the quartermaster general of this army stated publicly at Agra that during his command of the Bengal European Regiment, no Masonic brother's name has ever appeared on the defaulters list. The Irish jurisdiction has always included the great majority of army lodges. In 1813, without counting the remote pentacles under provincial grand lodges in foreign parts, the approximate number of regimental lodges which had existed under the Irish, English, and Scottish jurisdictions were as follows. Irish, 190. English, 141, of which 116 were the ancients and 25 moderns. Scottish, 21, making a total of 352. Of these, however, there remained working in 1813 only the following. Irish, 135 lodges, English, 65, with 46 ancients and 19 moderns, and Scottish, 19, making a grand total of 219. Since the union of the Grand Lodges of England in 1813, 25 English, 40 Irish, and 2 Scottish regimental lodges have been chartered, making a grand total of 419 ambulatory lodges, which are known to have been constituted by the Grand Lodges of the British Isles. In addition, No less than 40 military lodges have been warranted by the English provincial authorities abroad, and these were never registered in the books by any Grand Lodge. These ambulatory Masonic lodges were formed in every branch of the land forces. The infantry of the line headed the list with a total of 224. 
Next followed the British and Irish militia with 68, the cavalry with 49, and the Royal Artillery with 28. The Royal Marines had seven lodges, the Royal Engineers three, and the Foot Guards one. It is interesting to note the number of distinct lodges that were attached at different times to particular regiments. The fact that there were several lodges in the same regiment indicates generally that there was a plurality of battalions. An instance of this is that of the first foot, in which there were three different warrants in 1814. The first battalion held warrant number 11, Irish, of 1732. The fourth battalion held warrant number 289, Scottish, the Royal Thistle, of 1808, both battalions being then stationed at Quebec while the 2nd Battalion in India held warrant number 574, which is English, Unity, Peace, and Concord of 1808. The Masonic Brethren of the 17th Foot seem to have used the name Unity for three successive lodges. This is probably unique in the history of military masonry, where numbers appear to be the rule and names the exception. The first military lodge under the Grand Lodge of Scotland was erected in 1743 in the 55th Regiment of Foot. This lodge, however, was never accorded a place on the official roll of lodges chartered by the Grand Lodge of Scotland, in which the Duke of Norfolk's in the 12th foot was enrolled as number 58 in 1747, and this number is now shown as its earliest military lodge. The first military lodges warranted by the Grand Lodges of England were erected in 1755 in the 8th and 57th foot by the Moderns, or regular Grand Lodge, and the Ancients, or Schismatics, respectively. Both the Irish and the Scottish lodges attached to regiments worked on the system of the ancient masons with the results that they had a marked influence in America where the army lodges exerted their greatest influence. The surviving ambulatory lodges are as follows. Irish Constitution, Leesware No. 649, warranted in 1932 and working in the 8th Royal Irish Hussars, Waterloo No. 571, warranted in 1923 and working in 1st Dragoon Guards, one and All, number 524, warranted in 1921 and working in 32nd foot. Charity, number 570, originally warranted in 1780 but became dormant in 1858, was revived in 1863 and is now working in the 5th Dragoon Guards. Glittering Star, number 322, originally warranted in 1759, became dormant in 1820, revived in 1855, and now working in the 29th foot. St. Patrick's, number 295, originally warranted in 1758, became dormant in 1830, revived in 1877, and now working in the 4th Dragoon Guards. Number 74, originally warranted in 1737, warrant lost in 1807, became number 316 English Constitution in 1808, and now working in first foot. English Constitution. Unity, Peace, and Concord, number 316, warranted stationary in 1797, subsequently suspended in 1803, became ambulatory in 1808, now working in first foot. Social Friendship, number 497, warranted in 1844 and working in 89th foot. Three of these Irish regimental lodges trace their descent from a very early date, but in no case is there an instance of an existing Irish lodge having been at work continuously for over a century. Of the military English lodges that still exist, number 316, Unity, Peace, and Concord, formerly Lodge number 74 IC, in the 2nd Battalion of the 1st Foot, now the Royal Scots, with its continuous record of 196 years working, has undoubtedly attained the longest span of uninterrupted life that has ever been enjoyed by an army lodge. 
Lodge Number 11, Irish of 1st Battalion, the Royal Scots, also had a wonderful career of 115 years existence, during which it admitted 352 persons to the order. This lodge worked from 1732 until 1845, but two years later its records closed with a remark, warrant given up April 1847 by order of Colonel Monsell. The reduction in the number of military lodges has been the result of a number of causes. Some army lodges ceased to work owing to the loss of their warrants, others through the regiments to which they were attached being ordered on foreign service. Probably many ceased to exist owing to the reduction in number of members. And, as is well known, many ambulatory lodges have become stationary lodges with the passing of the years. It appears to have been essential to obtain the consent of the commanding officer to the formation of a military lodge within a unit. And at any time, it seemed that at the fiat of the colonel, for the time being, this permission could be revoked. In one case, it is known that the colonel sent for regimental warrant, and, as soon as it was handed over, he placed the warrant on fire. The passing out generally of Freemasonry in the army seems to have occurred during the Forty Years' Peace after Waterloo, during which period official orders and regulations were issued prohibiting the formation of secret societies and meetings and regiments. The law of the Grand Lodge of England, forbidding the initiation of civilians and military men below the rank of corporal, undoubtedly assisted the decay of military masonry. For without a doubt, many of the better class privates formerly became members of the Regimental Masonic Lodge. The old roles of members demonstrate this. With respect to the class of person who might be initiated in a regimental lodge, no restriction was ever imposed by the Grand Lodge of Scotland. But by a law of 1768, the Irish army lodges were prohibited from making any townsman a mason in a place where there was a registered lodge. This law was later extended, and from the year 1850, all army lodges working under the Grand Lodge of Ireland are forbidden to initiate a civilian in any part of the British Empire where there's a registered lodge held within 10 miles of his residence, or where such army lodge then meets. The colonel of a regiment often became the first master of the lodge attached to it. Thus, in the 20th foot, 1748, Lord George Sackville presided at the first meeting of Lodge Number 63, Irish. The Grand Lodge of Scotland departed from this general rule in 1771 when it granted a warrant to the 17th foot and named thereon Thomas Hanson, a private soldier of the 17th foot, as the first master of the lodge. This warrant is registered in the books of the Grand Lodge as number 168, but number 169 is written on the document. The warrant was given to replace a warrant, number 136 Irish, formerly held by the 17th foot, and lost through the many hazardous enterprises in which they had been engaged in the service of their king and country. Warrant Unity number 169 was taken to North America when the 17th foot embarked at Cork in 1775, and it disappeared from view shortly afterwards. But a year or two before the commencement of the Great War, it became known that Warrant Unity number 169, Scottish, was in the possession of Union Lodge number 5, Middleton, Delaware, USA. There appears to be some doubt as to how the warrant came into American possession. The story, told by the Union Lodge, is that the document was found by American soldiers on the battlefield of Princeton, 3rd of July, January, 1777, but the records of the Grand Lodge of Nova Scotia state that it was captured at sea. A new warrant, number 18, from the Provincial Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania, was shortly afterwards received to replace the lost Unity number 169, Scottish. This new warrant was very soon captured by the Americans, but was fortunately returned again to the regiment on 23rd July 1779. 
Nothing is known as to the fate of warrant number 18, Pennsylvania, after 1786, for the 17th foot returned to England in the autumn of that year, and on 24th of January 1787, the regiment received a new warrant, number 237, from the Ancients Grand Lodge of England. This warrant, number 237, appears to have lapsed about 1792. In 1790, the 17th foot were embarked on board the fleet to serve as marines, and probably the warrant was lost during the time the regiment was engaged on this duty. The foregoing remarks relative to the adventures of some of the warrants of the 17th foot help one to understand some of the difficulties experienced by earlier military masons. Probably many other regiments could show equal vicissitudes of fortune in connection with their Masonic lodges, as the loss of the regimental warrant seems unfortunately to have been a fairly common occurrence with British troops until at least after Waterloo. For instance, the 38th foot received a warrant, number 441, from the Grand Lodge of Ireland in 1765. In the lodge records, there is an account of the lodge having reopened at St. Pierre Martinique on November 8, 1796. The former registry, with the chest, warrant, and jewels having been captured by the enemy at Helvetsluis on January 1795. The 46th foot, it has been stated, twice lost its Masonic chest on active service, and according to regimental tradition, General Washington gave instructions for its return on the first occasion, and on the second occasion, the French military authorities, three years after its capture at Dominica in 1805, returned it. And in the Peninsula War, when the Masonic Brethren of the Sixth Dragoon Guards unfortunately lost their chest, it was returned under a flag of truce with a guard of honor. Finally, the 2nd Battalion, 1st Foot, seemed to have lost their warrant, number 74 Irish, in a manner which perhaps was more common in those days, when so much depended on the goodwill of the regimental quartermaster and his department for assistance in conveying and in taking care of the Masonic chest. In 1807, owing to the sudden order the regiment got to quit England, it, the warrant, seems to have been left behind at Hillsay Barracks, Portsmouth, where the 2nd Battalion had been for a few days pending embarkation. No trace of it has since been discovered. Lodge No. 74 Irish had a most unusual career, and prior to the loss of their warrant, the Lodge had served in no less than 10 countries in Europe, Asia Minor, North Africa, and North America, as well as numerous islands in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean Seas. On quitting Albany, New York, Lodge No. 74 Irish, in accordance with what appears to have been an unauthorized custom, gave to certain civilian local masons a copy of the Lodge warrant, allowing them to set an act during our absence or until they, by our assistance, can procure a separate warrant for themselves from the Grand Lodge of Ireland. The local brethren started work as a lodge as soon as Lodge No. 74 left Albany in 1759. In due course, they received a proper local warrant, but not, not apparently one from the Grand Lodge of Ireland. It is stated that the Brethren of Mount Vernon Lodge No. 3, on the roll of the Grand Lodge of New York as the lodge is known today, are inclined to consider their lodge the oldest in New York State, because the original warrant No. 74, under which its founders worked, was issued by the Grand Lodge of Ireland in 1737. This unauthorized custom of giving to other groups of Masonic Brethren copies of the Lodge Warrant seems to have been prevalent for some long time in military masonry. Another instance of an unauthorized custom on the part of the military masons occurred when Lodge No. 63 Irish, attached to the 20th foot, erected a lodge which worked in German at Charlottesville, Virginia during the War of the American Revolution. Research by Carl Kemp of Brunswick produced a copy of the ritual used and also the following interesting information. Under the Brunswick and Hessian officers lodging in the barracks at Charlottesville were some Freemasons. 
and the barracks encampment was an English military lodge known as Irish Lodge No. 63 of the 20th English Regiment of the Line. With this lodge, such officers as were Masons affiliated, and a number of other officers were entered, passed, and raised by it. Among the New Brunswick officers was Ensign Johann Heinrich Karl von Bernwitz, one of the most prominent soldiers of the period, who was also initiated by the English Lodge No. 63 and became later Worshipful Master of Lodge, Karl Zur Gekroken Saul, Charles of the Crown Pillar, in Brunswick. In the archives of this lodge are kept manuscripts written by von Bernowitz, from which it is learned that the German officers erected a part lodge, a deputation lodge of the English lodge, and worked by themselves. The manuscripts open with a list of the Brethren Freemasons with the German troops in barracks at Charlottesville, Albemarle County, dated February 13, 1780. In this list are given the names of nine officers, eight Brunswick and one Hessian, who had been made Masons in Germany and a further 13 names of German officers admitted and also passed and raised in part from January to August 1780, inclusive, by Lodge No. 63. A lodge in the 39th foot claims to have made the first Mason in India. Gold, the Masonic historian, says the 39th Regimental Lodge, No. 128 Irish, subsequently founded numerous lodges in various parts of the Hindustan, and there is a stone let into the wall of Fort William, Calcutta, commemorative of the early history of this lodge. Of course, there is nothing in existence to prove that the 39th Regimental Lodge had authority to found numerous lodges. Many more instances could be quoted to show the great service to masonry performed by military lodges in the past, carrying out the unauthorized custom of founding lodges in out-of-the-way places of the world. Although military lodges in more early days were so far from their grand lodges, they were not unmindful of the claims of their Masonic charities. Another aspect of military masonry which does not seem to have been mentioned is that which deals with the expenses of military lodges and how members were able to defray them. For it must be remembered that the pay of the soldier was formerly only about a clear penny a day. Another excellent point was that these early military masons shared their convivialities with others. There was nothing clannish or exclusive about them. And as the following advertisement will show, which is an extract from the Nova Scotia Gazette of December 12, 1783. The Brethren of Lodge Unity No. 18, Pennsylvania, held in HM 17th Regiment of Infantry, intend holding their Festival of St. John, 27th December, and dining at Mrs. Dawson's Tavern near Cornwallis's Barracks. Any Brethren who wish to dine with them will give in their names to Quartermaster Sergeant Humpage on or before the 23rd instant, as no application can be taken after. By order of the master, Dan Webb, Secretary. Friday, December 12, 1783. The following remarks written by a well-known and distinguished Masonic writer, J.H. Lepper, part author of the History of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, may well end this short account of military masonry. The laborers of these army lodges must have had a weighty influence on the craft generally. Our military brethren were accustomed to a stern discipline and would endeavor to have their ceremonies performed as if on parade. In our own day, you never see finer Masonic working than when it is carried out by servicemen, and there is no lack of evidence that our military brethren of a century ago, and more, were quite as meticulous in having things just so. What a lesson it must have been for many a local lodge to observe the way in which the soldier masons of the garrison perform the ceremonies. Nor is it any wonder that we find the military mason's name set down as that of an honored visiting instructor in many of the old minute books. Again, they spread the light of masonry. 
Many of the greatest Masonic constitutions of the world can trace their first springs to an itinerant military lodge. And there's a note. Lieutenant General Sir George McMunn read the proof of this article, which he considered a most notable addition to Army historical record, and added, I have lately presented to the Regimental Museum of the Royal Regiment a certificate signed by the Master and Wardens of the Lodge of the 4th Battalion, then quartered in Edinburgh, to give my grandfather, Ensign George Matthias of the Royals, on his leaving for Canada to join another battalion, then taking part in the American War, commending him to all Masons around the world. The signature of the Master is W. Galbraith. I have also a letter from him before becoming a Mason, dated 1812, which will intrigue Masons, in which he says, Such fun, and I have discovered the secret word of the Freemasons. Here they are, and in this old faded letter are the words printed in capitals. Sir George McMunn also added that he understood that some of the Negro lodges, which are apart from any American organization, were left by the marching regiments in situ at the time of the American War of Independence. So that article, brethren, was written in 1935. Uh, obviously, some of the historical commentary in it is what you would expect for the time. So anyways, uh, hope you enjoyed that and stick around. We'll continue pulling articles from this awesome website about the history of masonry and other uh, commentary on masonry. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.